Welcome to Feminist Question Time, brought to you by Women's Declaration International, which is the leading global organisation defending women's sex-based rights against the threats posed by gender identity ideology. There's more information on the website, womensdeclaration.com, where you will find our Declaration on Women's Sex-Based Rights, which has been signed by 37,389 people from 160 countries and it's supported by 515 organisations. So we've got wide support for this sort of common understanding on defending women's sex-based rights in our Declaration on Women's Sex-Based Rights. We've got volunteer activists, including country contacts from every continent. And do join us if you want to. If you're new to this webinar, please look at the declaration and sign it and get in touch to help um, if you can. And you can see uh, ways of getting in touch. Today, we're going to hear from Sandra Ramirez, who is from Colombia, and she's going to talk first about censorship and freedom of speech for gender critical feminists in Colombia. And then we're going to watch a video from Elisa Mondegreen that Zandalio has made with Elisa, The Secret Life of Gender Clinicians. And we're going to go now to our first speaker who is um, Sandra Ramirez. So welcome, Sandra. Um, Sandra's a chemist, a scientist, and a feminist activist for women's human rights, and a volunteer of Colombian WDI, where she's from, and um, uh, also the Mexican chapter where Sandra is living. So the title of Sandra's talk today is Censorship and Freedom of Speech for Gender Critical Feminists in Colombia. Thank you so much for joining us and I'll pass over to you. I am going to talk about this. Uh, recently, some members of the Colombian chapter of WDI went to the Colombian Congress to participate in a public hearing that intended to regulate the use of poverty blockers in minors. Indeed, we obviously have gender critical concerns. Reaction of our interventions were vehem vehemently violent. I am going to be talking about cancel culture as a punishment that trans activists in Colombia apply once gender critical activists provide our opinion. A member of us is a lesbian radical feminist. Her name is Lucille Dupin. She's also a single mother and a musician. She has been affected professionally by portraying her opinion on the issue. She shared a video of her intervention in this hearing on her social network, and this video went viral. It is important to mention that this is how trans activists knew that this hearing was taking place, uh, just watching us. Unfortunately, a magazine called Volcanicas stigmatized her uh, to the point of canceling her in different artistic scenarios, depriving her from several job opportunities as well. It is not the first time that this magazine does that. In 2022, Laura Lecuona, who is the contact of Mexican's chapter, lived a similar situation. Uh, this journal is 
funded by the Open Society. That is a foundation well known for purple washing and for using uh, other causes to wash them too. Her perspective was immediately associated with the far-right postures and religious groups and punctually transphobia without any evidence. Different members of this magazine have been feeding this myth, tagging her job on different networks that directly affect her professionally and biased people's beliefs about her, about Lucille. As WDI Colombia, we reject any sex-based rights deprivation. And this is the case in which males have been prevailed before us. These people have no fear on affecting our rights to this point, which is ridiculous because uh, they tag us as anti-rights, but it is obvious that the only anti-rights are them that triggers our right to work, which is a which it is a legitimate le legitimate right. Secondly, I'd like to mention another case of cancel culture. Uh, that occurred as consequence of us being critical of, of this topic. It is about another member of WDI Colombia who is part, who also participated in this hearing. Her name is Alejandra Vera. She's a well-known activist who works strongly against, against sexual trafficking in Colombia and fights, and fights against the promotion of the gender identity ideology. She's also the representative of women and girls in two laws made for the benefit of, of them, of us. <laughs> And she was democratically, dem, democratically elected for this purpose. I mentioned this because she went to that hearing in that condition. Uh, due to her perspective, which is based on research and logical thinking, as well as Lucille's, Volcanica denied that she basically represents those two laws uh, in Colombia, her foundation against uh, sexual exploitation stopped uh, receiving fundings. She had to move to a different part of, of the city she lives because of persecution and had to change her son from school. Sadly, we understand that we are not the first, nor will be the last to suffer this persecution for raising our voices. However, we believe it is important to share this and provide evidence that this treatment is widespread and affects uh, those of us who advocate that women are human beings with human rights not essences or, trans or transactional objects, since this type of treatment dehumanizes. Um, thanks for listening to me. Do you think it's getting worse there now? 
Yeah, uh, it is so sad, but uh, Colombia, well, Colombia is a country that have a context of armed conflict. Uh, I, I, if you have uh, heard something about about our reality, and we uh, work a lot to change uh, the right wing governments. Now there is a left-wing government, but this government came with a, a lot of laws in detriment of our rights. First of all, they made a direction of sex work, which is, well, it's so crazy because CEDAW uh, has recommendations, entire recommendations, in order to tell the states uh, that uh, prostitution and trafficking is the same, but I, I don't know what a Colombian state uh, thinks about it. Of course, it doesn't care because uh, they they made this this uh, sex work direct direction and. Uh, of course, they also come with these transgender laws that were approved the last year in Spain. Uh, it is uh, important to mention that, uh, I, how is the name of that? Irene Montero is uh, a, big, uh, a good political friend of our uh, vice president, Francia Marquez. So the agenda is the same and it is so sad uh, because uh, as I mentioned before, this treatment dehumanizes. How about public opinion? What are the normal people uh, thinking? Are they starting to become uh, peaked by this? Uh, well, first of all, uh, for example, about transgender uh, stuff in general, I think that this is a conversation that are having, well, as like a gender critical activist and maybe trans activist uh, circles, but people in general, uh, does not speak a lot of this. And I think that maybe don't understand the implications of that. We have been a little uh, bit, no, we, were, we are trying to uh, do some uh, pedagogy about that because, for example, laws of women in Colombia are recently and we are trying to to teach people how uh, we can have these uh, for example women as a, a as a, a figure in our legislation and this was a fight of a lot of women uh, and we can erase that. So uh, that's the panorama uh, in that area. In the area of prostitution, it is so sad because uh, Colombia has uh, a lot of narco culture. 
because of our situation and narcoculture has done uh, lots of sad things on femininity, on the expression of femininity. Uh, what context make that uh, our oppression uh, look so uh, raw? in all aspects then narcoculture has made so uh, so many damage in in colombian image that what is colombian imaginary that of what is a woman so prostitution is so uh, normalized in the mind of Colombian people and the main thing that a uh, normal people says if is that if if women want why not and well it, we know that it is a, a more deep discussion about that so uh, this is the the general panorama in in these both areas we're gonna now hear um an interview that uh brought with elisa mondegreen and Zan Dalio. We're going to hear from Elisa Mondegreen. She's a graduate student researching the beliefs of affirmative clinicians, so affirming gender identity ideology, as well as the ways questions and doubts are handled in online trans and de-trans communities. You've attended three conferences since last year, um, since we talked last year, one in Montreal, um, one in Ireland and the latest in Denver. And I'd like to use a quote from your wonderful article in Unheard, The Secret Life of Gender Clinicians. So tantalizing, I like the title. Okay, so you wrote, after years of flying under the radar, the field of transgender healthcare is facing serious questions about whether minors can consent to life-altering interventions. What role factors like autism, sexual orientation, and social influence may play in the explosion of children and young people identifying as trans? And what to make of the mounting evidence of medical harm, regret, and transition? In response, the field of trans healthcare is becoming ever more secretive. At these conferences, the big questions confronting transgender health care hardly feature. Instead, these conferences serve at a different purpose, to shore up the faithful and cultivate a revolutionary vanguard with medicine. To this end, the proceedings result, revolve around a strange scent of parables, that of the good gender clinician and the bad gender clinician. So with that, what does a good gender clinician and a bad one look like? So the basic outline of these two parables, the good and the bad gender clinician, they're basically a way of educating providers into what they should bring to their encounters with patients. And a good gender clinician is basically defined by his or her credulity in terms of basically whatever the patient brings into the exam room, whatever embodiment goals the patient expresses, and that's one of their favorite terms, um, the, the clinician should go along with it. And the kind of the mark of a bad gender clinician, and you know this is made very explicit throughout all three conferences, they feel, quote, an entitlement to know the reasons why a patient feels the way that he or she does. 
they feel like they can discern kind of the underlying causes of gender distress. Um, they leave a door open for desistance, which we should remember used to be the most common outcome before gender clinicians started interfering early in puberty with puberty blockers and cross-sex hormones. And the, you know, these kind of parables keep unfolding and they'll talk about, you know, okay, how does a good gender clinician and a bad gender clinician react to a complicated patient who comes in, maybe with a case history of, um, so in, in Denver, there was this example of how to get informed consent from a very complicated patient. And the patient was autistic, had a schizophrenia diagnosis, had a learning disability, um, had a recent psychiatric hospitalization, identified as a demi-boy and desired a hysterectomy and a phalloplasty, which were, are two of the most extreme of these, you know, menu of interventions. And the, the presenters, you know, walked the audience through what a good gender condition does in the situation, which is that they will find a way to get to consent. They will find a way. There's no barrier too great, and that includes you know, a learning disability that includes the autism, that includes the patient having unrealistic ideas about surgery, that includes the schizophrenia diagnosis. All of these things can and should be overcome so that the patient can meet her embodiment goals. A bad gender clinician, on the other hand, is someone who's going to bring what would be conceptualized as, you know, her reservations or her hangups into the exam room. And so she may feel uncomfortable being asked to cut the breasts off of an autistic teenage girl. She needs to get over that. She shouldn't let that stand in the way of her patients getting the care that the patient believes that they need. That's kind of the basic outline of those wow. two. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You answered my next few questions, right? That oh. whole that whole role playing thing. Um. So so at, are there, you know, how does how does the bad clinician, you know, find his or her peeps in these conferences. I mean, conferences are about coming together, you know, and if it's got this cult-like ad clinicians there at these conferences, do we, do we do they identify themselves or how does that work? I mean, I think that there are always people present who are kind of less committed to affirmation in all scenarios, but that is the tenor of the conferences overall. And those people don't tend to be the ones presenting and don't tend to be the ones who are, you know, trumpeting their views. But I'm sure that there are people who feel, you know, not completely comfortable. They're just, they're going through this process of kind of this attempt to re-educate them into this more flexible position toward affirmation. Do they ever have these bad clinicians? Do they ever express the reservations have you heard any and what sort of the what sort of reception they got or what kind of interaction between the goods and the bads there were yeah um i mean the the social pressure is pretty strong to be positive about transition so i can think of two instances in the three conferences where people brought up reservations or serious questions of any kind um so one was regarding the inclusion of eunuchs in the standards of care eight that the World Professional Association for Transgender Health released in 2022. There were several people who felt really uncomfortable with this. Interestingly, they couched their discomfort in the use of language around eunuchs and not the actual concept that there could be, for example, child eunuchs or that, you know, that, that this is some kind of like gender identity that the medical system should be validating by 
castrating healthy men. Um, so they focused entirely on the language. And it was interesting because usually the, you know, in these conferences, the clinicians are, you know, wanting to use the language that the community uses and not to impose a language on anybody else, but they were really uncomfortable with the language that eunuchs use. Hmm. And the language eunuchs uses, they will say castration rather than like gender affirming nullification surgery or, um, and, and so the, all of the objections were on that level. The hmm. other thing that I think people were uncomfortable with was um, there was a session about how to work with patients who claim to have multiple personalities, who also desire transition. Um, a number of fairly wild case scenarios were enrolled during the session, like, okay, what if you have a bunch of different personalities in one patient and they have conflicting goals for hormones and surgeries? How do you? Wait, how do you do that? You mean? I'm thinking of the movie Sybil, where right. like, because not my world, you know, um, psychology, psychiatry. So basically, okay, I'm fighting with myself. Yeah. Okay. Well, you know, like like they think that their patients are. Um, so what if patients disagree about getting a mastectomy, for example? How do you work that out? And there were no questions about this really concerning part of the session. The only question that came up in that session that was a kind of a serious question, was a woman about my age who was a therapist um, and had blue or purple or some kind of, you know, very colorful hair. And she said, you know, you've talked a lot about people having alters that are a different age or they have different, you know, kind of psychiatric background or they maybe they speak a different language. But like, what about if somebody has like a transracial alter? And the response to that was that you know, nobody wanted to talk about it, that that was still really like way overboard, even though we could talk about people having animal alters. So those were really like the only moments of kind of uncomfortable questioning. And as you can see, neither of those are really like serious questions like about consent, the diagnostic criteria, any of those like more serious issues are not coming up that I've seen in these conferences. That's just not what they're about. Yeah, question, you yeah, buy 90% yeah. of the way in. And then you have a question about the last 10%. Yeah, and that, you know, you say in the article, you said early, it, earlier on, you know, it's, it's really about just, um, you know, kind of going along with this and not asking what you would think a clinician would ask as in terms of a, just basic ethics of, well, mm -hmm. you know, what what of these different pathologies is actually should be prioritized, you know, um, and none of that's being, none of that's being discussed, you know, the autism. The I mean, something like that will be discussed, but it's discussed in a compartmentalizing way. So it'll be like, well, people can have trauma or schizophrenia or can be psychotic and still be transgender. And that you just have to be able to kind of hold these things together and separately and not let them interfere with the kind of the command to affirm the gender. Right. Yeah. Right, right, right. It's mind boggling. I mean, even I had to even look up the word demi boy. I mean, you know, and yeah. I'm, on, I'm on Twitter, you know, it's like, <laughs> what does that mean? Um, yeah. Um, it means somebody who probably shouldn't be having a hysterectomy and a phalloplasty. I guess. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. 
And um, you mentioned also in the article about there was a public relations uh, specialist who was a presenter, I believe. Yeah. Cautioning clinicians. So they've got a public relations person. So what, I mean, I guess this is, goes back to the articles, like the secret lives. So what are, what are we hearing and what, you know, and what's not, what, what, what are we not hearing, I guess? Sure. So there were actually three separate sessions at the most recent U.S. PATH conference in Denver that were related to public relations. So it's obviously a keen interest of this field is how do we talk about what we do? Um, and the answer is basically the public relations advice is that you should talk about it in ways that don't freak people out. The way that this particular one of the main presenters put it um, was the dinosaurs are scared. So normal people are scared when they hear about kids maybe having surgeries, kids making irreversible decisions. And that doesn't mean that maybe we're not doing the right thing or maybe we haven't convinced the public that this is a good idea. It means we need to not tell the public things that will scare them. And so the advice would be things like, okay, don't talk about ages and don't talk about surgeries and don't be specific. And like that, unfortunately, it was like really, I'm trying to remember what he said exactly. It was like, unfortunately it's harmful or unfortunately it's not productive or something to go into details about the work that we do. You have to present a picture that people will be on board with. And so they said, rather than call it even something like gender affirming care, which people don't know. And, and he said, when people hear the term gender affirming care, they think trans kids in the driver's seat. And he was like, and we think we hear trans kids in the driver's seat and we think that's really great, but you know, the public doesn't feel that way. So it's better to be more euphemistic and say, you know, it's essential health care. And just kind of leave it at that. Yeah, right. Yeah, well, so don't yeah. give the public too much information to make their own judgments. Right. Right. What else can you tell us about this? Anything else about these conferences or generally? Because you talked about, you know, you started doing, well, I don't exactly know when you started working on this, but you were reporting on a, a WPATH conference this time last year, pretty much. So, you know, can you make some comparisons between the last presentation and now or something that's just blown your mind at this point about it or yeah um i would say like what changes have i noticed over the last it was a period of about 14 months that i was going to these conferences and from the beginning to the end you could definitely see some ideas that were on the fringe at the first conference become much more mainstreamed by the second and third conference. So the first conference played into a lot of hyperbole around attacks on, you know, transgender people, meaning attempts to restrict, you know, certain kinds of like hormones and surgeries for kids. And, you know, by the time I got to the European conference in Ireland in the spring, one of the opening speeches was about trans genocide and this, that this was just this completely unsubstantiated, but also, you know, like focal point of the conference was that we're living through a trans genocide. So the atmosphere is getting more and more extreme, I think, more and more radicalized over time. They use the word trans genocide. I'm sorry to be so ignorant to mean what? So this term gets thrown around a lot, as you might guess from the 
what I've shared from the PR training, there's a reluctance to define certain terms and transgenocide is definitely one of them. Um, there are a lot of references to the different stages of genocide that researchers identified after the Holocaust around um, dehumanization and other steps that transgender activists will, will point to. But often when they're talking about dehumanization, they'll be talking about recognizing that people are still male and female. This seems like a pretty big leap to me. Um, but basically the idea is that attempts to restrict access to certain interventions or to remove, for example, in the United States, Medicaid coverage from certain options, um, that these represent an attack on the existence of transgender people and the desire to prevent people from being transgender and that that's genocide. Those of us who have studied the real thing would beg to differ. <laughs> um, I, I haven't, I mean, not studied it in a serious academic way. It was the focus of my like teenage reading and my undergraduate degree was studying, you know, the real Holocaust and the real eugenics movement in Nazi Germany. And let me just say, I don't see a whole lot of parallels. Yeah, I yeah. would, I would um, concur with you. Well, thank you so much. Thank you so much. We're going to stay in contact because uh, I'm sure you're going to be keep keep working on this or are you close to doing your um, writing on this, your dissertation? Um, I am close to finishing my academic work, but I imagine that I'll keep uh, reporting. I still find it very interesting and important place to spend time. Great. Well, we need it. We need it. Thank you so much. All right. Thanks, everybody.